Good morning, everyone. Don't know who I am. I'm Pastor John. I'm so glad that you're joining us here in worship today. I'm also thankful for those of you who may be watching online. This week, I was uh, spending a bit of time, and I also had some help. My wife was helping me too, trying to work out the details for our mission trip we're taking to Africa this summer. There's so many details and flights to work out, all these things to think about, and we're just going there, a team of about 10 of us from the church, we're just going there for a short time. It's only about 11 or 12 days. And there's a lot to figure out. Inevitably, something will fall through the cracks, but the, we'll talk as a team. We'll know that maybe everything won't be perfect when we go there, but you know what? We're just going there for less than two weeks. It's a short trip, so we can be flexible even if things are not perfect because we're not going to live there. That's not our home. We're just there for a short amount of time. And what I'd like to propose to you today is that's really the way all of us should think about our lives here right now on earth. Because we are on a mission, just as the team is going on a mission trip, not for themselves, but to serve others, so are we called to do the same thing. And the lives we have right now, this isn't permanent. The home you have right now is not your permanent home. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, they will not last very long. And when this life is over, then we are off to our eternal home. And that eternal home is going to be in one or two places. It's either going to be an eternal separation from God, or it's going to be an eternity spent in a perfect relationship with Jesus Christ. And the fact that our lives passed so soon and eternity waits after that, that should teach us a lesson. The lesson it should teach us is that Jesus is better then you're having your best life now. Now, I'm well aware that there's a book that has a title that says that. I'm not particularly addressing that book or that author today. I, from what I understand of it, I would probably disagree with most of it. But what we're talking about today is the reality, the reality that eternity is better than having the best experience of our life in the here and now. Eternity is forever. It will go on and on and on. That's so much better than trying to make the best possible experience that we could have right now. To do that, we're going to look at a passage from the book of Hebrews. If you've been here, we've been going through this book, studying the book of Hebrews. It's a letter in the New Testament. It's a letter that an author is writing to Jewish background believers, people who follow Judaism, part of the Hebrew people, but now they follow Jesus. They're tempted, though, to go back to their old way, their old expression of faith. And he's telling them, no, Jesus is better. The passage we're going to look at today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 40. And this is going to continue a discussion about faith that Pastor Tom started last week. And it's going to focus on how living by faith in Jesus is better than any other life. And as I was looking at this passage this week, there were three words that stood out to me. And so those are the three words we're going to focus on. In fact, they're your three blanks today. If you want them in advance, I can give them to you. We live by faith by considering, thinking about what's worthy, and knowing that something is better. Consider worthy and better. If we want to live by faith, we must consider, think about who God is. We must determine where our worth lies And we must realize, embrace the fact that we have something better through our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Let's talk about it from God's word. If you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. You can also use that blue Bible in the seat in front of you if you don't have one, and you can keep that Bible if you don't have one for yourself. We'll also have it on the screen. But once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. It's a longer passage, so I'm not going to read all of it right now. I'm going to read two parts from the beginning and then kind of the second half. So Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Our author tells us that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's jump ahead to verse 24. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And I'm going to jump one more time to verse 32. Our author says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But the second half of verse 35 says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38 tells us, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had promised and provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which tells us that you are so much better than having our best experience of life right now. God, I pray that your word today would teach us how we can live by faith, by considering who you are and what you have said. God, may we think about where we are worthy, where our worth lies. And then may we remember, truly remember, that we have something better through your son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves us, the one who calls us to you. May he be the one we focus on today. May he be the one we glorify. May he be the one who increases in our hearts, our affections, our thoughts this morning. 
It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we're going to think about what it looks like to live by faith, there's three words we're going to focus on. The first is consider. We need to consider who God is, or if you want to put it another way, consider what God has done. And it's a long section we're looking at, but the two verses we're going to focus on are verses 19 and verse 26. And so I'm in part building on something Pastor Tom shared last week. If you were here last week, he talked about the first half of chapter 11. And he talked about how faith is an acknowledgement of already, not yet. We already have wonderful things from God, but do not yet experience all of them in their fullness. And Pastor Tom said that faith is responding in obedience to God's word. It's knowing what God has said, knowing his promises are certain and sure and acting on them. If you were here, you remember he said that acting in faith, trusting God's promises, that's more certain than even sitting in a chair because the chair could break, but God's promises will never fail. And the people we read about in chapter 11 are individuals who responded that way. By faith, they trusted in God's promises. Their actions show that they lived by faith. And they did that, I'm going to argue this week, because they considered who God is. They thought about who God is, and they trusted in his promise. They acted in faith based on his word. They considered, they reasoned, they thought, they made a decision based on God's character. One scholar, George Guthrie, puts it this way. He says, faith involves confident action in response to what God has made known. Faith is a confident action. God has said this, so I'm going to act in this way. The first few verses we looked at were about Abraham, verses 17 through 19. This is a reference to a story in the early part of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22. God speaks to his follower Abraham and challenges him to offer up his only son Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham moves to obey what God has said. And they say, that's crazy. Why would he do that? Well, let's read our passage again. Verses 17 through 19 say, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering his own son. The one who it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But verse 19 tells us that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, God had told Abraham before this that he would have descendants. He would have offspring that would come from his son Isaac. And in fact, we have that promise. It's from Genesis 21, quoted in the middle of verse 18. God said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Abraham was confident that he would return with his son Isaac. If we go back to the book of Genesis, as Abraham's on his way, he says to the young men with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. He was confident his son would come with him. God told him to take his son and offer him as a sacrifice, but he knew I would come back. He would come back with his son. And so our author, in verse 19, he reasons, well, Abraham must have believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He must have considered, concluded that that is what God would do. That Abraham trusted in God's power to do what he said. 
It's encouragement to us to meditate, to think about the truth of God's word. I was reading a, a Puritan author named Thomas Manton this week, and he encouraged us to do this, meditate on the truth of God, because Abraham had such high thoughts of the truth of God that he was confident that God would disturb the whole course of nature rather than not make good his word. Abraham was confident God would get rid of death and bring his son back, but God will not go back on his promise. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in the book of Romans about Abraham. He's speaking about Abraham and said, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Isaac may have been as good as, as dead, but Abraham acted in faith and God provided a solution. In fact, God provided an animal to sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice, something to die in Isaac's place. The next verses go on to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. They also believed God's promises to bless their offspring. Verses 20 through 22 say, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, the, the son after that, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, his son, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then another generation, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. He gave directions concerning his bones. These are all stories from the book of Genesis. And it ends with Joseph and the Israelites are in Egypt, but Joseph knows God has promised he will take them out of there to a promised land. And so he says, when I die, this is where you're to take my body and what you're going to do. He was confident that it would happen. Moving then from the very first book, Genesis, our author moves to look at the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. There we learn about Moses. Verse 23 tells us, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses was born at a time where the king, the Pharaoh, said that all male babies of the Hebrew people were to be killed. But his parents knew, no, God has a heart for life. God has love for our people. They may have known that God had a destiny, a beautiful destiny for their son. And so they kept him hidden and alive. They did not fear man. Like Pastor Tom was talking about last week from the first half of this chapter, they heard God's word, they trusted what he said, and they acted in that faith. And that brings us back to the next section I'd like to spend some time on, verses 24 through 26. This is the second use of that word, consider or regard, in verse 26. It, it's actually a different Greek word, but the meaning is the same. To consider, to think, to take in inventory. Let me read it again. Verses 24 through 26 say, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the one who had adopted him. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why did he do this? Because he considered the reproach, the shame of following Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. Moses didn't want to be known or called as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't want to be in the Egyptian ruling elite. 
He rejected the privileges of that life to identify with his people, God's people. They were slaves. He chose to share in that oppression of poor slavery. He rejected the worldly power and wealth in Egypt. He valued a relationship with God more than what he could gain apart from God. He valued being united to God's people no matter the cost. There's a psalm where the author says something similar. He says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper just on the outside of God's house than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Be welcomed somewhere else. This is what Moses did. He chose mistreatment and suffering over the fleeting and passing pleasures of sin because he knew they were temporary. He knew, as 1 John says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He knew that. And most importantly, verse 26 tells us that he considered that the reproach and disgrace of following Christ is greater and has more value than all of the treasures of Egypt. From the outside, that's a really incredible decision. Have you ever been to an exhibit where they have artifacts from ancient Egypt? Do you remember studying it in school? They are incredibly detailed artistic designs, things that have lasted for thousands of years. They look beautiful and decadent even today. Uh, A handful of years ago, uh, one of my brothers and I, we went to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia when the King Tut exhibit was there. These are things thousands of years old that look beautiful, that people come still to this day to see and to marvel with. These are the treasures that Moses rejected. In the height of Egyptian power, he said, no, I don't want that. I don't want that life. Why did he do that? because he was looking to a heavenly reward. He considered, he calculated that if I suffer now from my relationship with God, relationship with Christ, that will lead to a better reward than enjoying all this wealth in Egypt. He realized there's more to be gained in suffering for Christ than enjoying all of the wealth and treasure and riches that you could find on this earth. In the song that the worship team sang about Jesus is better, there was a line there, more than all riches, Jesus is better. That is what Moses was thinking about. He knew there was greater pleasure with Christ, greater pleasure with Christ than could be found without him. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon, he preached about what God's people will say when their lives are over. He's imagining what we'll say, and this is what he thinks we'll say. We may say, I missed the pleasures of this world. I didn't have all the good things I could have had now, but they were no miss to me. I was glad to miss them, for I found sweeter pleasure in the company of my Lord. And now there are pleasures to come, which shall never end. That's the thought Moses had. That's the thought of we know God. That is the result. That's the end of our lives, what we experience. And so we must leave worldly approval to go to where Christ is and to follow him. We'll read later in the book of Hebrews that Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, make holy the people through his blood. And so therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let us bear, there's that word, the reproach, the shame 
that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city, the home that is to come. Or in the verse we read just before the sermon, the Apostle Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, for Christ's sake, he's willing to suffer the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, as junk, as trash, everything else, in order that I may gain Christ. It's a challenge to us to make the same thought. Everything that you have right now, everything you could possibly get on this earth, does not stand when compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And the glory to be experienced in eternity. Nothing here compares to what is to come for those who know God. Well, let me finish this, this section of Scripture. Verses 27 and 28 talk about Moses obeying God's instructions for bringing the people out of Egypt. It says, By faith he left Egypt, being, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Just like his parents, Moses endured, he persevered, he trusted God in the face of a king's anger. He trusted the invisible God over the angry Pharaoh. And that probably didn't look like a lot of sense to people that day. Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler in the world. What what are you doing, Moses? But it was the best decision he could have made. Because even though God may be invisible to our eyes, he's greater than any earthly king. The book of Exodus also talks about they sacrificed lambs and used their blood to put on their doorpost, which probably looked weird and strange to others. But by doing that, the destroyer, the angel of death, passed over their houses. And God's people were safe. Verses 29 through 31 finish the story of God's people coming out of Egypt. It says, by faith, The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is talking about how God's people continued to trust him. They trusted him to lead them through the Red Sea. They trusted him to win a victory over the mighty city of Jericho. And Rahab's really interesting here because this woman, we read about her in the book of Joshua, she was not by birth a member of the Hebrew people, but she trusted in God's word. She had heard that God would give his people this land, and so she welcomed them when they came, and she became a part of his people. Every person we talked about in this chapter, both last week and this week, they all considered who God is and they responded appropriately. In fact, we could put that word consider in each part, just in the parts that I've talked about, about Abraham. Well, he considered God was able to raise his son from the dead. Isaac considered that he would bless Jacob and Esau by faith. Jacob considered the blessing that would come on his son, Joseph. Joseph considered, he thought God is going to bring our people back from the promised land. Moses' parents, they considered that God cared for his people and wouldn't want them to kill their own son. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. 
He considered that God was greater than this earthly king. He considered that God would pass over and spare his people from death. The people considered that God could bring them through the Red Sea. They considered that God could bring down the Jericho, the walls of Jericho. And Rahab considered that this God is going to do what he promises. So what about us then? Do we think the same way about God? When issues come up in our life where we know where we want to go and what God says, do we think about God's promises in his word? Do we take him at his word? Do we respond in obedience to what he says? Look, friends, if you want power, if you want wealth, if you want comfort and pleasures in this world, then you can find those out there. There are ways for you to get everything your heart desires here. If you work hard enough and know the right people, you can get whatever you want here. But these men and women, they thought about that and they decided that it was not worth it. Said, I could put my effort into getting things I want in this life, but that's not worth it in the end. And let me encourage you to make that same decision. Anything you could want or find out there is not worth it. But knowing Christ is worth it. Because the things of this earth are worthless at the final judgment. And so that means we need to ask ourselves a question. Where is this worth? And that's the question we need to ask. Where are you worthy? Where are you worthy? That's a word that stood out to me in verse 38, and we'll get to that one, where he speaks to these people and says, of whom the world was not worthy. So we should challenge ourselves to think about where does our worth, where does our value lie? And I saw the word worthy, and if you like superhero movies or things like that, you may think of the Marvel hero Thor, because he has this hammer, and the hammer says, whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. And that's a silly comic book, but ask ourselves that same question. What about us? Are we worthy? Where does our worth lie? And we find out in these next few verses. Let's start with verses 32 through the beginning of verse 35. They say, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And the beginning of verse 35 says, women received back their dead by resurrection. For the sake of time, the author is rapidly summarizing more Old Testament examples of faith. He was going slow and now he's just rushing through many characters in the Old Testament and their mighty deeds. And you know what? I could take the time, I could look at each of these people, each of these references, and I could pull out scripture and say, this is from the Old Testament where he's talking about. Oh, this person, you can read about him here. That person, you can read about him there. And if you want to know about them, please talk to me. I'd be happy to go through each and every one of those examples. But very briefly, the author is saying that God used Old Testament heroes, rescuers, judges, kings, to save his people time after time. And he also speaks about prophets, Prophets who spoke his word to his people, who faithfully lived out his commands. What did these people do? Well, verse 33 tells us 
They conquered, subdued, overthrew enemy kingdoms. They enforced, administered, and ruled with justice. They worked out God's righteousness in their world by their faithful lives. They saw God's promises fulfilled. They saw God's power over the natural world as he even would stop lions from attacking them. They survived fire and escaped death. God showed his strength in their weakness. They were powerful in war. They found great victory over God's enemies. God used his power through them to raise people from the dead. This wasn't things they did on their own, but as God worked through them. But that's not all that happened to God's people. Those joyful victories were not the experience of all of them. Second half of verse 35 tells us that some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some of God's people were tortured because they were looking forward to a better resurrection of eternal life. They didn't compromise their faith. They're like, I know this suffering can end if I say I won't follow God anymore, but they persevered in their faith. They did not accept an early release because they were awaiting a heavenly deliverance. They said, yeah, things are bad in my life here right now, but there's something better still to come. The point the author is conveying to us is faith in God sometimes leads to amazing things, but it does not always lead to a positive outcome. Sometimes faith in God leads to suffering, trial, and hardship. And the fact that we experience persecution and suffering, that does not mean that we are a failure in following God. In fact, God's word tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That persecution may look like mocking, jeering, people being flogged or imprisoned, whipped. Uh, one example is the prophet Jeremiah. We read in Jeremiah 37 that the officials were so enraged at Jeremiah that they beat him and they imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary that had been made a prison. This picture isn't even a picture of that. It's a picture of the very next chapter where they throw him in a cistern, a pit of water, because they don't like the things he is saying about God. But for some of God's followers, it was even worse than that. Verses 37 and 38 tell us, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Those gruesome deaths are the traditional way they, the Hebrews believed that the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah died. More than that, these prophets did not have fancy clothes. They did not enjoy the world's goods. Instead, they found something better. The author has his conclusion there in verse 38. All these people he's talking about who suffered, the world was not worthy of them. He's saying God's faithful followers were too good for this sinful world that doesn't deserve God's grace. That's how God views his people who suffer. They are, the world isn't worthy of them. Now that doesn't mean that our response is, well, the world isn't worthy of me, so forget the world. I'm going to do whatever I want. No, no, God's given us resources to wisely steward, to care for this world he's given us. 
God's people, if they're united around God's purposes, they can make a great deal of positive good in the world. It was mostly, not mostly, but a large portion of Christians, followers of God, who brought the end of horrible things like slavery in the British Empire. Christians working hard, seeing that God cares for people. But the point our author is making is that despite all that, whether good or bad, the world is not worthy. Our value is not determined here. If we know God, then our worth isn't found here. Our worth is found in heaven, in the life to come. And what that means, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus Christ, is that you will not have your best life now. I'm sorry, that's what you're thinking, but that's the truth. If you are a follower of Christ, you will not have your best life now. You must always think that is still to come. We're called to trust God even when it makes life difficult now. Even when things are hard, we still trust him. Remember how Moses, he suffered the reproach of Christ. He suffered for God's people the way Christ and his followers do. And we are a part of that same people. Friends, we shouldn't expect to be welcomed here. We shouldn't expect people to say, yay, the Christians have arrived. That's not what what we should expect to happen. And so if persecution, if suffering comes on us, that doesn't mean we've been abandoned by God. It doesn't mean we should cry out, oh God, why have you rejected us? No, we're actually finding our proper place among God's people when we suffer for him. We're modeling our Lord and Savior. Again, Pastor Spurgeon said, Christ suffers in the least of his people, the poorest and most obscure of them. When they're ridiculed or put to scorn for his sake, they are not alone in their grief because the head suffers in the members. The reproach, the shame that we may experience is really the reproach of him, of Christ, in whom we believe. This week I got in the mail a kind of magazine, I'd say I subscribe to, but they, they send it for free. Uh, this organization called Voice of the Martyrs, maybe you've heard of them. They re- publish stories of how God's people have suffered, are suffering for him around the world. And their stories of the faith and trust of God's people makes our type of Christianity here in America look like child's play. These are brothers and sisters who churches are destroyed. Their loved ones are abducted. They experience violent government persecution. But they go through that because they know their eternity is secure. Somebody who died for the faith shortly after the time the New Testament was a man named Justin Martyr. Well, that's how we know him. And he said, remember, brothers and sisters, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. Now, now to be clear, like, Persecution hurts, like it's not pleasant or enjoyable, but what he means is that in regards to eternity, in regards to our future home, they cannot hurt our standing with God. I think our American church has a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters around the world about what Christian faith really looks like. We should be humble and receive their lessons. Jesus himself said in the book of John that I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world we will have tribulation, but he has overcome. So friends, let me ask you, what what are you looking for in life now? Are you looking for a great life now? Are you looking to make things comfortable for yourself? and your family? Are you looking for a good life in this world? 
there's nothing wrong with seeking to take care of our loved ones. I'm not saying that at all. But if we value what we have now more than we long for heaven, then we are far too comfortable. And our priorities need to be adjusted. And look, I understand how hard that is. Uh, as you heard a few minutes ago, I have a daughter and I have a wife. And I love them very much. And I, I enjoy our life here. And so it's sometimes hard to think about eternity, what comes after this part of life now. But then the moments of struggle come in life. Then hard times come. The grind, the daily pressures, and those things, if my mind is in the right place, should remind me, oh, that's right. This world is not my home. To go back to the Puritan Thomas Manton, he said, we are not right Christians until we have such an esteem, such a love of Christ, that the worst things which can befall or happen to us in his service should be more to us than the best things of the world. The worst that we could experience right now, if it's for Christ, should be better than anything else that we could find in this world. Because the best and most comfortable life, if you could imagine this is the best life I could possibly live on earth, whatever that is, all the money, houses, vacations, whatever that is for you, the best life that you can think of, it cannot compare to even one second in God's presence. And so this passage we're reading here challenges us to move our eyes from what we see around us to what is to come. And that's what faith does. It looks ahead and sees this is what God is going to do, and it acts knowing that truth. One last quote from Thomas Manton. He said, faith is like a perspective. It gradens things at a distance. It lessens things near at hand. So faith gradens heavenly things. It lessens worldly things. We value less what happens now. We value more what is to come. Friends, we do not have much time on this earth. After this life is over, we face eternity. If we do not know God, then this life here on earth is our best life now. But if we do, if we build our value, our worth in eternity, then there's something far better to come. And this happens through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the last word to highlight in your outline, we have something better. We have something better. All these people we talked about last week and this week in chapter 11, they were commended. They were praised for their faith. They left a good testimony. They were approved for a godly reputation. Some pastors have. I could do a sermon series on every single person referenced here. Uh, the guy Thomas Mann, and I'm quoting, he did at least one sermon on every single verse in the first part of this chapter. Spent time looking at each one. We could do that. But I decided we should go through this chapter quickly. And I did that intentionally. Because as great as the lives of those Old Testament saints were, as amazing as the, those things they did were, you and I right now, if we know Jesus Christ, we have something better. Something better than what they had. The author himself says this. He says, all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. And apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
as we've seen throughout this book. This is a lesser to greater argument. God did great things then, but he's provided and planned something better for those who know him now. Because now we know who Jesus is. We know what Jesus has done. We know Jesus, he's the son of God. God sent him to earth. He lived a perfect life. He fully obeyed everything that we couldn't obey. And then he died in our place so I don't have to try to earn my way to God. He died for me. And then he rose from the grave so now I can have a hope of resurrection life. Those Old Testament followers, they did not see Christ's work. They did great deeds trusting that God will someday bring a Savior, but they didn't see it happen. And our author is saying the fact that we know that, that is better than everything they did. We have something better than every Old Testament saint. That, that's, that's an amazing thing because I don't think we think about that very often. I think we think, oh, I wish I could have lived then. You see those cool things that happened to Abraham? Oh, what about the Exodus seeing, going across the Red Sea? Oh, David defeating Goliath? Wow, those were people of faith. They were really awesome and cool. I wish I could be like them. Our author says we have something better. Jesus says it too. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, he said there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, he was a pretty cool guy, John the Baptist. But Jesus says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The one who knows me in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist and all those who came before. Because all those before, they didn't know what they were heading toward. All they could see was a dim preview in the future. One verse we read last week was, chap- was verse 13 of chapter 11. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Having seen them, they greeted them from afar, and they had to acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Oh, but that is not us. We know the reality of who Jesus is. We know what he has done for us. And Christ's work now makes it possible for all of God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, today and into the future. It makes it possible for all of God's people to be perfect before God. Because if we know and trust Christ, then God sees us as perfect before him. His plans are perfectly fulfilled. And now they know those Old Testament followers, now they and we know the power of Christ's sacrifice. And we know what is to come. The joy of sinless perfection awaits. And that's ahead of us a day when every desire, every thought you have will be perfect and pure. You won't have to beat yourself up about doing wrong, about making mistakes, because we'll be with God, perfect as He is. I mean, he's greater than us, but we will experience that perfection of unhindered fellowship with God. So let me ask you, where would you like your best life to be? If you want it to be now, then you can go out those doors today and you can find people who can get you all the wealth, treasure, money, pleasure that you could want in this world. But if you want this better relationship, this better life that can only be found through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will know him or ask questions about how you can know Jesus. Turn from sin and believe in what he has done on your behalf. Because if you do, then you will be able to live by faith. You can consider who God is. God has done all these things for me and he's promised great things to come. 
You will know that your worth lies ahead in eternity. You will embrace your better relationship with Jesus Christ, better than any other religion or faith that you can think of, this faith in Christ. It's better. It's worthy of praise because Christ alone is worthy.